But let's ask God to help us now as we come uh, to hear his word. Our Father, we thank you so much that we have uh, the freedom this evening to come and open up the Bible and in there find you. And I pray that you would help us uh, now as we come to read and study and listen to what you have to say to us. Help us to listen, to hear, and to apply what we hear to our lives. As we've been singing, Lord, we pray that you would capture our hearts, captivate our hearts, so that all we do speaks of you. Amen. Well, if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter uh, 4, that's uh, page 1006 in the Church Bibles and page 1562 in the large print. We're going to look at verses 35 down to chapter 5 and verse 20. Now, throughout the history of mankind, if you were to study uh, the history of all mankind, you'll see that uh, we're a whole lot better at finding ways of destroying one another than we are at finding ways to make the world better, aren't we? I could give you a history of, of weaponry or warfare, for example, and you'll see exactly what I mean. We do really well at finding better ways of killing one another, don't we? But at the same time, maybe we deserve some credit, because we do try, in some ways, to make things better. For example, over the last hundred years, medical science has advanced greatly. Apparently, we're able to predict the weather with some accuracy, although in this country you could just predict it's raining and you're usually uh, quite spot on. And there hasn't been a, a major war, in Europe at least, since the end of the Second World War, really. But no matter how far we've come, we're never at a place where sickness has ended. We may be able to predict the weather, but we can never control it, and disasters occur because of that all the time. And we may not have had a war in Western Europe recently, but there are wars and fights all over the world where millions of people die all the time. And most people, whether they realize it or not, want the world to be what God had made it in the very beginning. They want it to be very good. But of course, we don't live in that world, because after Adam and Eve sinned, the world was cursed. But when they sinned, you may remember that God made a promise, didn't he? That one would come to crush Satan. One would come, and one was going to restore things back to the way that they were. And in today's passage, we really see that Jesus is that one. The one who doesn't just predict the weather, but actually controls it. He doesn't just make an evil person a bit nicer, but he eliminates evil altogether. And the whole of the Old Testament was the search for this one who was going to fulfill the promise of Genesis chapter 3 to crush the head of the serpent, and to, make, and to make a way where man and God can be together again. And all throughout Mark, he's trying to prove that Jesus is this one. In the very first verse, 
we read the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The God-man, the man who has come to make a way back to God. And this gospel is written to show that Jesus Christ is that Son of God. And he's uh, marks constantly, uh, if you like, referring us back to that first verse by saying, look at what Jesus is doing. You can see he is the Son of God. He is the one that fulfills all those promises that have been made. And as we've gone through Mark, uh, we've seen that Jesus has been proving who he is through his miracles of healing, his casting out of demons, his teaching with authority, forgiving sins, teaching about the kingdom of God. But in tonight's passage, in Mark uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see even more clearly that Jesus is the one to restore creation and to destroy demons because he proves he has absolute authority over those things. He shows that he's the God over creation and the God over demons. But we also see that he uses this power to save his people from a broken creation and from the power of demons, which pictures for us what he will do again when he returns. So let's begin by reading Mark's account of Jesus, first of all, showing that he's the God of creation, the God over creation. And I'm going to read verses 35 to 41 of Mark chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, it was evening on the same day that Jesus had been teaching parables, which is where we left off at the end of last week. He'd been teaching the parables and explaining them to his disciples. And the first part of chapter 4 up to this point has been going on and uh, Jesus has been finishing his teaching and he now wants to go in the boat that he was in uh, to go to the other side. He left the crowd behind and no doubt many were puzzled uh, by the parables in judgment for unbelief as we've seen before. But nevertheless, some followed Jesus and it says in verse 36 that uh, he, they, uh, there was other boats. They took him along as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So even as he was going to the other side, Jesus was still attracting a crowd, even while he was sailing away. And verse 37 tells us that a, a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boats so that it was nearly swamped. Now these uh, squalls or storms are not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee, because on the Sea of Galilee it's surrounded by mountains. 
on both sides, and it makes it a bit like a bowl. And what happens is, in the summer, the wind comes down and turns the lake into like a boiling cauldron, and in the winter, it's even worse, because the cold air from above hits the warm air that sits in the bowl, and it creates turmoil. So these storms would happen uh, often, very often. And if you were caught there at the wrong time, it was really very dangerous. And it says that this storm was furious, and so furious, in fact, that the boat that they were on was nearly swamped. And it would have been completely swamped had Jesus not intervened a bit later on. In fact, the disciples thought they were going to die. They thought they were going to die. But in the midst of this furious, furious squall, what was Jesus doing? Well, it says Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Well, how could he sleep at a time like this? Well, he was extremely tired. I don't know if you've ever had experiences where you're so tired, you, you could sleep through anything. Um, I have this fairly often. In fact, I can sleep through most things, which was much to Paula's annoyance when we first had children, and they were up in the middle of the night. And sometimes I'd wake up the next day and I'd say, God, they slept well, didn't they? And of course, they'd been up half the night, because I was sleeping all through uh, this crying. But Jesus was tired because he was teaching all day to lots of people, and it would have been physically draining. Any of you that have uh, uh, taught or, or preached or anything like that know that it is a tiring thing. It can be exhausting sometimes. And it wasn't that Jesus, he wasn't just standing there teaching. He had all the, the, would have had the conversations afterwards. We know that afterwards he was explaining things to his disciples. This would have been extremely tiring. And he was extremely tired and he fell asleep. Now Jesus, we have to remember, is fully God, but he is also fully man. And in this uh, picture here, where he's asleep on the cushion, as you picture Jesus, you see him as a man in his humanity. He was so tired that he was sleeping during a storm. But the disciples, in a panic, woke him up. Teacher, don't you care if we drown, they said. Now, isn't it interesting that these really strong, experienced fishermen went to a carpenter for help on the lake? They had no idea what to do. These were experienced men. They would have been on this lake many times. Maybe they would have even been on a storm. We don't know. But they were at such a loss at what to do. They thought they were going to die. And they got to that point and they went to Jesus. Now at this point we know they didn't know fully who he was. We'll see that later on. But at this point they knew that Jesus would have had some sort of access to God. They'd seen his miracles and the things that he'd done. And perhaps they thought he could tap into this again and help in this situation. It was a last resort because they'd been trying to sort it out themselves. So what does this carpenter do? When he got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Jesus shows that he is the God over creation. 
Usually after the wind stops, if you've ever seen a storm at sea, when the, when the wind stops, the water usually continues for some time afterwards. But it says here that it was completely calm. Completely calm. As if there had been no storm whatsoever. And verse 40 tells us, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now at this point they had seen Jesus for uh, a year and a half. They'd seen him heal the sick at a phenomenal rate, showing power over disease. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him teach with authority. And yet they'd, they'd heard, heard him telling them the secrets of the kingdom of God. They'd seen him forgiving sins as only God alone can do. And yet they still lack faith. They came to Jesus as a last resort and they came to him accusing him of not even caring for them. They said, don't you care if we drown? They should have trusted Jesus in the storm to protect them. One of the verses Clive read to us from Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4 says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You see, while Jesus slept as a man, he was fully watchful as God. And one commentator said, even every deepest manifestation of his humanity is immediately attended by the highest display of his divinity. When we see him in his humanity, we also can see him in his divinity. He's fully man, asleep on the boat, but he's fully God, watching over his disciples. Well, how did the disciples react? Look at verse 41. It says they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Or well, who is it? Who is this? Well, only God can control nature with his voice. Listen to these words from Psalm 107. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. This psalm is talking about a time of trouble. And they cry out to the Lord, and it's him that stills the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea are hushed. Can you see here, this is the Lord, and here Mark is showing us, Jesus is the Lord. Only God can control nature with his voice. That is who it is. God stills the storm and hushes the waves. And the disciples and the other uh, boats with them would, would know this to be true. Many of them would know this psalm. But in this psalm, it says that they were glad when it grew calm. But these disciples were terrified. It's one thing uh, to sing of God doing these things, but it's quite another, isn't it, to come face to face with the one who controls nature with his voice. And coming face to face with God is terrifying. It is terrifying, as we see all through the scriptures. And the disciples were afraid, but they were afraid at the beginning of the storm. The storm was terrifying, it was furious, 
But when they come face to face with God, they realize that he is far more terrifying and far more powerful than any storm. Jesus is more powerful than the storm. He is the God over creation. But it's worth noticing here how God uses this power. It's used to save his people from the storm. When I was a teenager, my mum always used to stay awake until I got in the door at night. I used to sometimes, as I got as older teenager, I used to stay out really late sometimes. But no matter what time I got in, my mum always stayed awake and never slept while I was out. She was trying, she said, when I asked her, why'd you do this? It's pointless. She actually said she was doing it to protect me, as if staying awake in the house while I was out would somehow protect me. And it's that protective instinct, isn't it, that mothers have. But Jesus was properly asleep here. He was asleep in this boat. But at the same time, he was protecting his children. And oftentimes we can feel as though God is asleep in our lives, can't we? I don't know if you ever ever experienced that, where you wonder, God, are you really there? You wonder if God is sleeping on the job. We have circumstances of life swamping us, don't we? Relationship problems, financial woes, health issues. And we feel as if God is asleep and he's not helping and we don't trust him. I'm sure everyone can relate to that experience. And we can be afraid, can't we? And in a way, we have much to be afraid of, don't we? But we must fear the Lord and not fear the storm. We fear the Lord as mighty God, but we remember that he is mighty to save, and he does so. And we don't need to fear the storm because we have the God over creation protecting us and watching over us. Now one thing to to note here, and really uh, it's important to say, God doesn't protect us from the storm. He protects us in the storm. Because you notice with these disciples, the storm came and Jesus allowed this storm to happen. But he protects us in the storm. And this side of heaven, storms come. And for some of us, they come an awful lot. But in the storm, the God over creation is watching over us. He is never slumbers, never slumbers and never sleeps. You see, the disciples never were overcome in the boat. They got to the other side. And nothing and no one can take us out of God's hands. We are always in his hands. And whilst in his hands, like in the boat, we can face all sorts of storms, but we will never, ever perish from the hands of God. And just like the disciples got to the other side, we'll see that shortly, Jesus is taking us to the other side, to heaven, isn't he? And there's no storm in our lives that can overtake us, no storm that can stop us reaching that final destination. We are protected in the storm. And just like Jesus here calms nature, he calms creation. In the end, Jesus is going to make a new creation where it's calm all the time. You see, the God who calmed the storm is the one who is 
calming souls right now, making them into a new creation. And he's taking us to heaven where we'll be in peace with him forever. We are not protected from the storm. We are protected in the storm. We must always remember this. So he's the God over creation who protects his people. But when they got to the other side, we come to chapter 5. And it was an amazing trip um, over to uh, the other side. But there's an amazing thing that happened when they got there. Jesus uh, showed that he is the God over demons. Let's read uh, chapter 5, verses 1 uh, to 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside nearby. And the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went in to the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Well, if Jesus is going to be the Messiah that restores creation, and then he needs to have power over it, which he has just shown that he does. But if he's also going to be the Messiah who is going to destroy Satan and crush his head, as promised in Genesis, then he needs to have power over Satan and over his forces or demons. And here Jesus shows that he is the God over demons. Now the man who, he, who ran to him when he got off the boat was a frightening man. And I don't think we uh, imagine this as perhaps we should, because it really is extremely frightening. He lived in the tombs, so he was more comfortable amongst dead people. And he was where people wanted him. He was so frightening that people didn't want him around them, he, they put him with the dead people. 
He was an outcast socially, and Matthew's account tells us that he was violent, uh, perhaps even a killer, which is why people were trying to bind him. He was certainly a very dangerous man. They couldn't even bind him when they tried, not even with chains, because he had supernatural power to, to break them. They couldn't subdue him. No one was strong enough. And it seems he was sleepless. Night and day, it says, he was crying out, cutting himself with stones. So as well as uh, likely torturing others, he was torturing himself. It's like he wants to die, but he can't die. He's controlled by a demon. If you like, this is uh, almost hell-like in its description, isn't it? There's no escape. There's no relief. There's nothing good in this man. It's an awful, awful state for someone to be in. And verse 2 tells us that it was an impure spirit. This was demonic, and he was utterly possessed. And I suppose we could ask the question, can this kind of thing happen today? Well, yes, I believe it can, and it does, and it's something that we shouldn't uh, fool around with. You know, can people be like this man? Well, yes. And occasionally, uh, this kind of thing happens. And I think in some cultures, it's perhaps more prevalent than others. Because the purpose of uh, what Satan's trying to do is to turn people away from Jesus. And I think in our Western society, he's having a lot of success uh, by doing that through the love of money and possessions, through false doctrine, or just plain apathy. But in other cultures, this kind of thing is extremely common um, and not something that we should be messing around with. And at the same time, we should make a, an extremely important point that uh, a non, uh, only non-Christians can be possessed by demons, as Christians have the Holy Spirit. Christians can't be possessed, but they can be oppressed. They cannot be possessed, but they can be oppressed. But again, in our Western church, I think this oppression is through those same things that we just mentioned, the love of money, materialism, apathy, and so on. But in verse 2, when this uh, uh, demon-possessed man comes to meet Jesus, at first, I don't think he appears to recognize him. He probably saw someone else from the tombs that he could torture, but as he gets closer, uh, verse 6 tells us that when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran, he fell on his knees in front of him. So he runs up to Jesus, he recognizes him, and he falls down. All of a sudden, he recognized who this man was. Now remember from chapter 1 that the demons appear to be the only ones who recognize who Jesus is. This man who could not be subdued with chains is subdued by terror of Jesus. And you'll notice, um, if if you want to, similarities between this account and what this demon says to what happened in chapter 1. So don't go there now, but if you want when you go home, you can see that this is a very similar kind of account in what is said between Jesus and the demons. It says, he shouted in verse 7 at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me, for Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now the impure spirit recognized Jesus as the son of the most high God and recognized too that Jesus could torture him. 
Now, the torture here refers uh, that to them being cast into hell awaiting judgment. In 2 Peter, we read a bit about this. In chapter 2 and verse 4, uh, God says that God sent angels who sinned, which are de- demons, to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. So these, demon, these demons didn't want to be tortured there, and they recognized that Jesus could do this immediately. But Jesus did something else. He asked their name. He asked their name. Well, why does he do this? Do you, does Jesus not know? Well, of course Jesus knows. But why was he doing this? Well, he wanted to show, I believe, the scale of these demons in order to demonstrate his power. Because look what the name was. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, a legion is a Roman military regiment that could have up to 6,000 men in there. So there were up to 6,000 demons in this man. If you like, he was home to a community of evil, unclean spirits. And this legion were standing before Jesus in terror. And verse 10 tells us that they were begging Jesus not to send them out of the area. Uh, Luke tells us that they were begging not to be sent into the abyss, which is this bottomless pit which we talked about a moment ago from 2 Peter. And Jesus could have sent them there immediately, but instead he does something really strange. Look at verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside nearby. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out, went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Well, why pigs? Why did Jesus allow them to go into some pigs? Well, one thing we know uh, is that demons always need a host, and Jesus isn't going to send them into somebody else. But he could have just cast them into the abyss. Why did he allow them even to go into these pigs? The likelihood is, with the demons, that they were the nearest thing that weren't human that they could go into. But remember, this passage is not about demons. This passage is not about pigs. This passage is about the power of Jesus as the God over demons. And for the same reason that Jesus asked their name to show how powerful he is, he then allows them to go into the pigs for the same reason. Everybody would see 2,000 pigs rushing down the hillside and perishing in the sea. Everybody would see that it was Jesus that gave permission for them to do this. Everyone would see that it's Jesus who has power over demons. Why did he allow this to happen? To show that he is the God over demons. Where did the demons go after the pigs were drowned? I don't know the answer to that question. But what I do know is that this shows how Jesus is more powerful than all of these demons. The destructive power of demons is shown in the pigs. They are powerful. The destructive power of demons is shown in the way this man was acting. It was terrible but they were nothing compared to Jesus. And the fact that there was a legion of demons is a display of Jesus' deity. 
it brings to mind the only other time that we know a company of Satan's followers were cast out, which was at the beginning, when they were cast out of heaven in the first place. Only God can do this kind of thing. Jesus is the God over demons. And like the storm can make us look forward to a time when Jesus restores creation fully, this makes us look forward to a time when Satan and his demons are ultimately destroyed forever. This is God. Jesus is the God that does this. He's the God over demons. <clears throat> and as with the storm, though Jesus, uh, Jesus uses the power that he has there to save, he does the same here, this time with his power over demons. You see, Jesus is the God over demons who breaks their power. Look at verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed of the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. The pigs running into the water would have been quite a sight, wouldn't it? And those who tended those pigs ran off to tell other people. And there was a commotion going on here. And people wanted to see what was going on. And they found Jesus with the man who was completely changed. Notice the contrast of verses 3 and 5 here. He was now sitting rather than prowling. He was dressed rather than naked, which Luke tells us he was. He was in his right mind rather than crying out and cutting himself with stones. And you may think, wow, what a, what a moment of great joy. But the reaction of the people is quite unexpected, isn't it? Because at the, in, in the same way that they were afraid at the storm, again, here, when they come face to face with God, these people were afraid. They were terrified. And like they were afraid of the storm, they were afraid of the demon-possessed man. Both these things were frightening. But like in the storm, they were far more afraid of the power of God. In fact, they were so afraid they pleaded with Jesus to go. Look at verses 16 and 17. Those who had seen it told the people and what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. They were asked, begging, him, begging him to go. They were afraid of what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Perhaps they were annoyed at the loss of property with the pigs. And perhaps they were wondering, well... What else is this man going to do? As frightening as the demon-possessed man was, he didn't make them uncomfortable within themselves. He didn't impinge on their behavior at all like the God of the universe does. They were more comfortable in the presence of evil than in the presence of God, so they asked God to leave. The presence of God was terrifying in the storm. Here, it's merely inconvenient, uncomfortable, and just quite scary. There's no thanks for the deliverance of a neighbor that they try to bind up and cast away into the tombs. But rather they realize they are more comfortable with evil than with righteousness. And we can be the same, can't we, really? If you, I was uh, thinking the other day about uh, a Christmas present I got one time, which was a, a microscope. And it, all, it, it was really cool until you started looking at your kitchen sides or you put it on your bed sheets or you uh, put it on your keyboard. And then all of a sudden, 
those, that bed I was comfortable sleeping in, that side I was comfortable cutting food on, and that keyboard I was happy typing on, all of a sudden, when it's exposed really closely, it's not so comfortable anymore, is it? And that's like the world today, though, isn't it? They're more comfortable in the presence of the devil's influence than they are with righteousness. When Jesus exposes the unrighteousness that's in our hearts, people flee or ask Jesus to go away. John chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Face to face with God, we see righteousness, don't we? And we realize that we are so far from that. But it can be the same with Christian people. Sometimes we want to hold on to sinful and wealthy things and would rather ask Jesus to leave us alone so we can hold on to some things of this world. We would rather ask Jesus to leave than to be exposed in certain areas, wouldn't we? What sins do you harbour? What commands are you asking God, uh, asking to depart rather than obeying? What are you holding on to and not giving to the Lord rather than asking him to go away? Because Jesus can make us lose property in some ways, can't he? And we have to make a decision in our hearts. Do I want to follow Jesus or am I more comfortable in the presence of the devil's influence? But what of this man? Well, he wanted to stay with Jesus, didn't he? He was genuinely converted. If the microscope was on his heart, there was no sin there because Jesus has taken it away. But Jesus didn't let him stay. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus did not let him but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Often Jesus uh, tells people not to say anything, doesn't he? We see that quite often, but here it's, it's different. In this Gentile place, Jesus wanted people to know that he had come, not just for the Jews, but for everybody. He had told the man to say, tell people what God had done for him. He went throughout the Decapolis, which is, uh, literally means ten cities, which was a group of cities uh, grouped around near each other. He was telling them what Jesus had done. He obeyed that command, and it says people were amazed. And when Jesus returns later on in chapter 7, we'll see that he had a great ministry, a great impact in this area. And we should respond in the same way as this man. For like him, we have had the power of Satan broken from our hearts and have been set free to serve Jesus. He has been rich in mercy to us and has done great things to us and uses us to do great things through us. And we ought to be sharing our testimony too and telling others of the great things that God has done for us. To tell of the God who has power over evil and has crushed Satan's head, ultimately on the cross and in his resurrection. And this power of God is terrifying, but he has used that power to save us. So as we close, I say to you the same thing that Jesus said to this man. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Will you go and do that this week? Will you go home and tell your people 
how much the Lord has done for you. So as we uh, close with our final uh, two hymns, we're going to start by singing, Tell Out My Soul. <laughs>